Therapy Chat Podcast, episode 155. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I am really happy to be bringing you another interview that was so powerful for me to record because it resonated so closely with the work I do with my clients. I think the author you're going to hear from is doing incredible work in helping therapists and the general public understand how trauma and attachment can impact someone's ability to connect in relationship and including receiving help in therapy. My guest today is a Canadian psychologist, Dr. Robert T. Muller. Robert T. Muller, PhD, is author of the award-winning psychotherapy bestseller, Trauma and the Avoidant Client, as well as numerous articles on trauma attachment and psychotherapy. Dr. Muller is a professor of clinical psychology at York University and a fellow of the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. Dr. Muller is a lead investigator on several multi-site programs to treat interpersonal trauma. He's an international speaker, and he has been in practice for over 30 years, and he currently practices in downtown Toronto. This conversation is one of my favorites, although there have been so many wonderful conversations I've had over the time I've been making this podcast. It's hard to say that, but it resonated so deeply for me. And I've been recommending his book to every therapist I talk to or work with. And really the book is for the general public. So this is a book that you can read if you have experienced trauma or have attachment issues, or if you're a therapist working with people who have those concerns. Of course, as therapists, we all have our own histories as well. You know, we have an attachment style too. So it's relevant in on many levels. So without any more time, let's go ahead and get started listening to my interview with Dr. Robert T. Muller. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. 
Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today I have a super fascinating guest to bring to you. I'm talking today with Dr. Robert T. Muller, who is a professor of clinical psychology, a fellow of ISSTD, researcher and therapist, and the author of the best-selling book, Trauma and the Avoidant Client, and the new book, Trauma and the Struggle to Open Up. Robert, thank you so much for being on Therapy Chat today. Oh, I'm so excited. Really, really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yes, I'm so happy too. Let's just start off for anybody who isn't familiar with you. If you could just tell our audience about yourself and your work. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I'm a clinical psychologist and my work has been in trauma for many years since I was a grad student. Uh, so that's going back to when I graduated in 1993, I think. And, uh, so it goes, goes back to, goes back to then. And, um, I've been working, uh, with trauma clients as well as, uh, research questions in the area. And, um, over the last few years, I've been really focusing on the, uh, the issues that I've written about in my book. So first, in uh, around, let's say, about uh, 12 years ago, I began really getting interested in the issue of uh, avoidance and how people avoid talking about or dealing with their traumatic past. And then in my second book, I took that issue and expanded upon it, really focused on how the therapy relationship is uh, such a key to people being able to get better from trauma and to go from a place where they, where they really do avoid talking about and, and thinking about their traumatic past to a point where they can, through the course of a psychotherapy relationship, be able to face and integrate some of the difficulties that up to that point were just so overwhelming to them and continue to act upon them and affect their lives. So that's, that's what I've been really interested in in the last few years. That's so beautiful. And, you know, when we think about avoidance, sometimes we feel as if it's something that people are doing deliberately. But of course, you know, there are many reasons that someone may not be able to face what happened to them or to think about it or to feel the emotions that go along with that experience or to trust us as therapists to be able to hold that. A hundred percent. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So are you willing to share a little bit about your own story around the unspoken traumatic experiences families hold and how it is for children growing up in that kind of family environment? Yeah, for sure. Let, let me let me just say, um, like respond to the first part uh, of your question or what you, what you had mentioned before about about avoidance, and that is that 100% I agree with you that uh, it's not something that's, quote, you know, something people are doing deliberately. It's, it's, it becomes an automatic thing. And, and where we really see this, and, and, and I talk about this in, in trauma and struggle to open up, the idea of family secrets, how people 
come to a place where family secrecy and then also family loyalty, so be, being um, loyal to one's family, the way that things were done and, and the things that were spoken and the things were not, that were not spoken about, these become uh, what people come to see, see as certainly as requirements. I mean, it's part of the family, but then also survival strategies. Um, and it's very frightening to, to think of doing something different when this is the way that it was done in your family. And I'm happy to share. Uh, so, so avoidance is very often related to this kind of, you know, tr- so avoidance of, of talking about traumatic events often becomes something that um, families that families do. And again, it's automatic. It's, it can be shameful. It can be embarrassing, you know, to, 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 you know, and when families do, when people do some point talk about their traumatic experiences, they can get a heck of a lot of resistance from their family members. In therapy, we often see in the same family, one child, you know, an adult child, let's say, who talks about some abusive event that happened with a relative, let's say, and then the other sibling, you know, their, their brother or their sister who says, you know, either that, that their sibling is lying or they say, uh, I don't remember that or, or what are you talking about? I remember, you know, uh, our family was, you know, and, and they say the exact opposite, experiencing, experiencing things really, really differently. And, and we see this sort of a difference in in the extent to which people are willing to be open or closed off about family secrets. And I'm, I'm happy to share a little bit about um, my personal, have I still got you there? Sometimes I talk on and on, but am I, am I okay no, here? No, yeah, you're still okay. okay. Right. And right. I love you what you said. Okay. So thank no problem. you so much. Yeah. No, no problem. No problem. So, uh, so that's just kind of a little bit of the sort of maybe whatever theoretical or, or background or what we see as therapists. In my own family, yeah. Um, so, uh, and 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 uh, this in my family, I uh, grew up as a child of uh, Holocaust survivors. But my parents, they weren't adults during the Holocaust; they were children during the Holocaust. So it's it's really interesting, and you know, it's it's um, it, it was of course terribly, terribly difficult for them to be children during the Holocaust. My mother was hidden and separated from her family, and uh, she was very lucky. So both my parents are Jewish, I'm Jewish. And uh, so it was, it was a life-threatening situation for my parents in Hungary. They grew up in Budapest, Hungary, both, both my parents. And uh, during the last year of World War II, I think uh, in the late 40s, um, it was a very particularly the most dangerous time for Jews in Hungary. My mother was separated from her family and hidden by a Christian woman who took a huge risk. I mean, she risked her life. My father was, uh, his, his mother was taken away. His father had been already taken away, but then his mother was taken away uh, by, the, by the Hungarian Nazi party, the Arrow Cross, they were called. And they they took my father's mother away, and so my father and his sister were left on their own. And his his uncle and his aunt, who the aunt happened to be Christian, so my, my father was also Jewish, but he, uh, this Christian woman had married into the family, and again took enormous risks, and in a number of ways saved saved my father's life. Got him papers that were that were false papers that he needed in order to be able to to be in, in Budapest. And 
now in my particular family, these particular stories, which were, you know, my both my parents, it's very hard for them to talk about this stuff. I mean, it's this is not easy stuff for them to talk about. They were separated from their families. Families. My mom, uh, she was about six years old, six or seven, and she was separated from her parents for for months and was terrified. So it was really a scary, scary situation for little kids. In many ways, I feel like my parents, I mean, my way of understanding it is that they uh, lost, you know, they faced really a lost childhood. Both, both of my parents really lost what it meant at that point to, to be a kid. They grew up very quickly and, and experienced things that no children should ever experience. And that was a huge trauma for them, losing, in a sense, losing their children. They, they didn't, you know, my, my, my mom's parents remained alive. My father's father was killed. And, and that was a huge loss for him as well, of course. So they, were, they went through a hell of a lot, my parents. And in my family, we did talk about stories about the Holocaust. But the family that my, my parents left behind who remained in Hungary, so my parents were immigrants and in 1956, um, after the failed Hungarian Revolution, came over to Canada where they happened to get visas. And at this point, they were adults. And um, their families that they left behind, especially my father's family that he left behind, never talked about the war. They never talked about the Holocaust. They never talked about their Jewish past. It was a secret, and some of them, of course, they, they, they've kept the secret till till today. And it's interesting, ironically, in Hungary, there's been a reemergence of, of anti-Semitism. But it's it's a I've seen in my own family how family secrecy, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. On one hand, it can be actually it can be life-saving. At times, people really need to keep secrets. And you know, for example, had my mother not kept the secret. That she was Jewish when she was a six or seven year old girl, from anybody who asked her, she would have been killed. Um, that's a tough thing to do as a little kid to keep a secret. I mean, little kids are notoriously terrible at keeping secrets. Yeah. So, so you know, some somehow I don't I don't know how my mother did it, but she did, um, even as a little kid. So, uh, so she she did manage to keep a secret then, and that was life saving. But my parents did talk about the Holocaust, but my family in Hungary did not, and they. They've kept the secret till today, and um, and it's it's really interesting to see within my own family these very different ways of reacting to 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 these these traumatic events. You know, whether you keep it a secret or not. Yeah, there's so many metaphors in that too. How the culture basically required them to keep it a secret, and still, you know, after that time culturally it was kind of like better for them if they did yeah yeah for sure after after the uh you know after my my parents left hungary it was the heyday of i mean it was an eastern bloc country hungary and so they certainly didn't talk about being jewish the family that was left behind mm -hmm. and in, and in fact took on a, a very different identity much of much of the family took on you know we're proud communists was was the was the thing that they that many of them took on, and uh, much to my dad's chagrin. My dad is my dad is a business guy, and uh, uh, you know, so um, uh, he was he was not not too happy about that. But uh, but the family that he'd left behind in Hungary, yeah, they they took on this sort of we're you know we're, we're 
communists and that was kind of an identity that they found and certainly being Jewish was the last thing that they ever wanted to admit to anybody. Yeah. So it was somewhat of a survival strategy to take on that new identity as well. And I I just think about how, you know, there's like a parallel between that and when there's abuse in families and how our culture encourages people not to talk about abuse and, you know, just so many things about kind of like collective responses to traumatic things that reinforce the smaller systems keeping that secrecy as well. And, you know, it goes, goes from being a survival strategy that's protective to like so many things with trauma, something that harms the people who are, or at least some of the people who are in that situation. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, pe- people learn their lessons well, and you know, and what worked as as a childhood survival strategy is is what people hold on to, and then as adults, they continue to, and even though it may get them into a lot of a lot of trouble in relationships, you know, what what w- did work at one point and, and made sense at one point, now in relationships becomes a huge burden. And, uh, you know, we see this when people carry trauma into, into intimate relationships where the struggle is with vulnerability. I mean, trauma, you know, the, the reason for secrecy is very clear. It keeps, it, 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 it holds vulnerability at bay. Um, you know, it, it's a survival strategy. But, but then in order to really be engaged in a, in a romantic relationship, in a sexual relationship, and think about what you need in order to be vulnerable enough to have a, a satisfying sex life, you have, to, you have to be willing to let go of, of control to some extent, you know, not, not entirely, but to some extent you have to be willing to, to ease up a little bit on, 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 how much, uh, you know, on, on how much you control everything. And, and that's hard. That's hard for people who have, who have tra- trauma history. Is it scary? And uh, it's just really, really tough. And, and so many, you know, many of them struggle with that. Many struggle in the parenting context because that's another place where to be able to be playful with your children, to be able to form a relationship with, with, with your children, an, an authentic relationship also means being willing to ease up a bit on control, to be, to be able to be a little bit vulnerable, to be able to, you know, as your children are teenagers, to be able to, to be honest with them about certain things that you, you know, that you went through as a teenager, certain struggles. And, and teenagers really respect that in parents when their parents are able to say, yeah, you know, you're having trouble with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Yeah. I mean, I remember I had, you know, sort of sort mm-hmm. of sharing, sharing a little bit. I mean, that's just a really nice, it can be a great moment between parents and kids, but that's hard when you're parenting with, with, a, with the burden of a trauma history, because that idea of feeling vulnerable, um, it's just, it's scary. It's dangerous. It's so it's, it's hard to do. So there are many contexts where it just kind of the, um, there's a revisiting of the past when, when, you know, when you're faced with those things. Yeah, this, this is so rich for me because I hear so many of the struggles that my clients have and that, you know, I and the people I love have in different ways with vulnerability and, you know, just control and all of the the barriers to emotional intimacy, physical intimacy, that unwillingness to be vulnerable because of traumatic past 
It really has. I was just talking about this with a consultation group I was in right before we started our interview. And in fact, I told them all about your book and they all wrote it down and said they were going to get it. So you'll see (laughs) four new, (laughs) four new sales today, at least (laughs) (laughs) like you're counting like with an abacus or something. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I mean, this is just really, really resonant for the experiences that I hear my clients sharing about. And that certainly I see, and feel in my own life. And one of the things you talk about in the book that I thought was what I love, one of the things I really love about your book is that you made explicit a lot of things that I know so many of my clients and people I know feel, and but it's not always spoken explicitly. So I love how you talked about those dynamics that are often kind of hard to put into words. Yeah, it was hard. It was hard for me to put some of them into words. It was it was a, a writing challenge because some of these things are so emotional mm-hmm. that words are limited in how you in how you describe it. So so I tried. I tried. I mean, I think you did a wonderful that. job with that. Thanks. Thanks. But yeah, there were there were certainly certainly and 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 yeah, and I wanted to make explicit some of the things that some you know therapists who are you know who've been doing this, uh, you know, been around the block a few times with, with these kinds of clients know to be true, but aren't necessarily, don't necessarily show up in explicitly in, in books on trauma therapy. Yes. One, one, ex- one example is this idea of taking the client's suffering seriously. Mm. And I, I talk about, I talk about that in the context of a particular case uh, and I've, I've changed the um, uh, identifying information, so so uh, so so this um, you know made made made, it, made the specifics anonymous. But this was a person who had a loss, and what I t- what I talked about was the idea that some losses, some traumatic events, the client themselves really struggles to take seriously and mm-hmm. doesn't feel that doesn't feel they have the right. To take seriously, and so you know you've got those clients who come in and say, "Okay, this is what happened to me, and I need help with trauma therapy." But then you have those clients who come in, and they don't call it trauma therapy at all, or, or anything. Mm-hmm. They, they won't, certainly won't even use the word trauma. They'll just say, "I, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me." And uh, in this particular case, this happened to be a client whose whose dog had died, and she couldn't get it. Why am I making such a big deal out of it? She was saying. Herself, you know, and mm. there was a struggle she had to take her suffering seriously. And the piece that I wanted to kind of outline in that case was how for her, for her to be able to reach a point where she could take her suffering seriously and begin to actually do the work of grieving the loss. I mean, mm-hmm. indeed, even being able to call it a loss, you know, other other than just why am I making a big deal out of this kind of thing. I had to reach a point where I really you know, both took her suffering seriously and helped her find a way to really connect to the loss. And and that was the relational piece. Um, but this is a concept that's taking, taking the client's suffering seriously that you might say, well, of course you need to do that. I mean, no kidding. But what I talk about in my book is all the times where there are various reasons why that, you know, you know, our own issues get in the way of doing that. And, and we don't realize that our own issues getting get in the way. And, you know, even our wish to fix people or make people better, our wish to, you know, sometimes um, manage care, 
uh, puts pressure on us. You have to fix this person already. Why aren't they better? You know, mm-hmm. there, there are all kinds of very real pressures that tell us, you know, we, we have to speed up. We have to speed up when what we have to sort of do in trauma therapy is slow down, listen, yes. be patient, and take, and take the suffering seriously. And then actually the work can happen much, much, much faster but um, we don't realize always that we're doing it. And so this, this was kind of through this story, I wanted to give an example where I, you know, I fell into that exact trap. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, I, you know, kind of where I was fumbling along and kind of how did I kind of work my way out of it? Um, what did I have to connect to to help me work my way out of it? And then the client could work their way out of it. And so then she was able to move on. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's something that I really was was sort of uh, trying to make explicit. Yes. And another one that you brought up was self-deception. And, you know, I thought about like the family mythology, like you hear these stories of the same stories repeated about what your childhood or your sibling's childhood was like. In my family, we have a couple of so-called funny stories, you know, everyone laughs the whole time the story's being told, but it, they both involve strangely. I don't, don't ask me why in my family, this happened more than once, but a child being hit over the head with a hatchet by another child. Wow. Wow. And, um, wow. you know, of course, both times the child in question who wasn't me wasn't permanently injured or killed. Thank God. But, you know, how that story can be told and retold as like part of our family mythology as a Mm. funny thing. Like, wow, it was just the craziest thing, you know? And it's like, no, that's, that's a horrible thing. And it doesn't give the child the chance to own the way it really was for them. You know, it's more told as it was just a funny story. And, and that I think really can contribute to that self deception where you talked about in your book one person who told how close he was with his mom and how she tried to abort him as yeah. with laughter. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it is. It's once, I mean, that particular story and your story, I've heard this so much from both clients as well as when I've done, you know, workshops on this therapists who say, yeah, you know, I really connect to that laughter and it's such an, it's so it's so fundamental because mm-hmm. laughter is a great coping strategy. Laughter is the best medicine. Laughter is a great way of getting out of or or you know getting getting through difficult, painful events. And can be and connecting. And it can be connecting with other people exactly. So it really is a double-edged sword. There's nothing pathological about laughter, and we want to you know we want to make sure that we understand that. And, and, but the problem is that when people are limited by only being able to see the, you know, but, but, you know, they use strategies where they kind of fool themselves, kid mm-hmm. themselves that something wasn't painful, then what ends up happening is that when they start to feel the pain of their past, they can't even recognize it. They're like, what's wrong with me? Like, what, you know, what, why am I making it again? Why mm-hmm. making a big deal out of this? This is, this, this was, this is a funny thing, you know? And, and, you know, and my mom loved me, of course. You know, yeah, she did. Oh, yeah. But, you know, and, and making excuses and kind of minimizing and that kind of thing. And when that happens again, it, 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 it sort of precludes the possibility 
of being able to have the vulnerability needed to be able to engage in, in an authentic relationship. I, I had that in, in, in my family as well. There's, you know, my, 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 my brother tells a, a, a quote, funny story um, about uh, this is, this is also interesting. This is also a pet, a pet story where, where we had, a, we had a pet and, and um, my parents ended up giving it back. And this is, this is not, um, you know, it was, it was a, a pet that my, my, that I and my brother were, were, you know, we loved, this was a dog and we both were saying this was, we had this dog for a few, uh, for at least a week or two. And then, and then my parents gave it back for reasons that yeah, I never really found particularly convincing. Yeah. And, but my younger brother tells it as a funny story, but I certainly remember that when it happened, it was not funny at all. It was, it was really, really, really painful. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I don't, I don't by any stretch fault my brother for, for telling it that way. I think, you know, using laughter is, is okay. It's important. And being able to sort of laugh at our, our, our pains, you know, um, gallows humor, it's, it's a thing, it's a thing we do. But at the same time, I think, you know, when, when we think about our trauma clients, there's a certain loss and sadness that, that part of our work as therapists is helping them get in touch with and connect to so that they have the ability to feel a lot of different feelings about, about their, their, um, their personal histories. Yes. And, you know, you talked about a few minutes ago, you were saying sometime our own issues get in the way. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about that you talk about in the book, and it's fascinating to me having, recently learned this term before I read your book and experienced it in an experiential training enactments. Yeah. Yeah. Therapist. We've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh. Did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore. When you use therapy notes, therapy notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used therapy notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend therapy notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get two free months. Can you talk about what enactments are and how they can play into us as therapists? For sure, for sure. So enactments are that that space where your underlying attachment issues as a therapist interlock with the client's underlying attachment issues and something gets played out that you hadn't expected and the client hadn't expected and it can be blindsiding for people so you know an example an example is so so a very simple example i gave you know, let's go back to the case of the fellow who told a story about his mother um, wanting to abort him. Um, he tells the story as a funny story. You know, he says, my mother tried to, he says, you know, I asked, 
he gave the example of having, you know, he said that he had a good mother. And I said, oh, well, tell me, and what, you know, can you give me an example of when, when she was a good mother? And I just simply asked him, well, she tried to abort me. Oh, oh, the story's actually cute and funny. You know, she and I used to, we became very good friends later on. And you know, she used to tell me, I used to jump up and down trying to get rid of you. Well, I just thought that was really funny. Can't you just picture that? Her pregnant, jumping up and down. So that's how he tells the story. So he tells it as a funny story. And he's told the story before, and he, he's told it as kind of a humorous thing. You know, and my, and so then the enactment piece is, what did I get, how did I get pulled into his telling of the story? How do I get pulled into his narrative? And what about me gets drawn into the situation? So in, this, in the book, I give the example of the piece that was, and this is a very small example of an enactment, and there are much you know, bigger examples, but this is a nice example because this happens all the time to therapists. You know, he's, he's laughing and he's, he's, he's smiling. And I noticed at some point that I was smiling too as he was telling the story. I had this big smile painted on my face. And it's, but here's the weird thing, and I talk about this in the book. I don't actually find that story funny. I actually find it kind of sad and weird and kind of creepy and, you mm -hmm. know, distur disturbing. But there's a part of me, you know, you might think of it maybe, maybe sort of a, uh, maybe a people pleasing part of me, a, a part that's just sort of reflects it, not wanting to embarrass other people. I mean, I don't know. I mean, something about me and my own kind of personal issues interlock with the client's issues where he's wanting to be avoidant. And we together in that little moment are kind of avoiding these feelings. Now, I'm not saying that I, I avoided it, you know, at any great length or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we did eventually come to these issues in, through the course of the work. But what I'm saying is that this is a nice example of how something about the client, something um, uh, about the client's history connects with something in the therapist's history so that the therapist then does something that in some way in that moment undermines the work or or you know um yeah undermines undermines the work sometimes enactments and that's a very small example um sometimes enactments can lead to all kinds of much bigger problems an example of where you really see this and it's actually uh, kind of a a problem in trauma therapy is where, you know, very often it's the case with clients who have trauma histories that they, you know, self-esteem is a big issue for people of trauma history. They often learn to, to in fact, uh, be quite, you know, people pleasing. They want to make people happy. They look for people who are authoritative individuals to, to turn to, to help them. Not saying everybody who has a trauma history does this, but but mm -hmm. there's certainly a sizable number of people who do this, um, because you know, uh, in in some sense, it was dangerous in the home to to assert your independence or to or to voice your opinion. To even have a voice could be dangerous in many in many people's homes. So to to get by this this is a very common sort of thing. We often see with clients who have this kind of this kind of profile a a tendency to come into sessions and to turn to the therapist and say, so, Dr. Muller, do you think I should do this? So, Dr. Muller, do you think I should do that? Kind of like treating me as their guru, in mm -hmm. a sense. 
Now, if I have something in me that really likes to be needed, that likes to be important to people, that wants, you know, there's a part of me, let's say, that wants to be valued by people, I could very easily fall into playing the role of the guru for this client, the, the, the person who has the answers. I could very easily kind of, and we could fall into this pattern of her or him treating me as the expert and me being the expert and kind of us together um, co-constructing the space that at the end of the day is not at all growthful to this person. I'm being nice to them maybe, and they're feeling like their therapist is listening to them and answering their questions. But am I empowering the person? No. Am I helping them find a way to be vulnerable in their life, even though that's a tricky thing to do? No. Am I helping them grow and develop? No. And so, you know, that's where an enactment of some kind, where, where our, our two issues interlock, can really be stifling, if anything, to the person, even though on the surface, kind of looks like we're doing therapy, you know, we're you know, sitting and talking and all the, doing all the therapy things, but ultimately, no, we're not really doing therapy. Yes, yes, so much. And, and another, I think, easy trap to fall into, and it's not a trap that's being intentionally set by the client. I don't mean that, but just it's an enactment. Exactly. Is exactly. when people are they feel very disempowered, which is, you know, extremely common for people who have been particularly people who have been abused in childhood or experienced other situations where they're they had a loss of power and control. So they present in a way of being very disempowered and seeking, maybe not asking for advice, but saying, like, I can't do this. I need you to do this for me. Or will you talk to this person for me? Will you find this for me and, you know, advocate for me in some way when really the person is able to potentially advocate for themselves if they can believe in themselves a little bit more and we can disempower them by just like, yes. And, you know, thinking, oh, I feel so bad for them. There's such a disempowered space. They need me to do this for them, you know, but really it's like we're believing that they're really as disempowered as they feel as a result of what happened to them instead of seeing that they, their power never changed. They just don't know how to connect to it. Exactly. A hundred percent. Yeah. They're, they, they don't yet know how to connect to it. They don't yet know how to find a voice. So, and that can be a real challenge. And the example I gave maybe, you know, where, where the person's asking questions, but it can be much more subtle than that, where the person is really just sort of, you know, where, where the therapist, again, un, un, inadvertently, I mean, this is not done explicitly. Uh, this, this, is done, this is done unconsciously, really, ends up kind of taking over and taking charge and trying to fix the person. Again, all, all motivated by a desire to help and, and, and out of love and care, but in, in the process is sort of enacting what sometimes is called the rescue fantasy. The person is, is in a sense, their, the therapist is trying to sort of rescue the person from their trauma history, which, you know, we can help people reach a point where they can learn to grow from and live, to live alongside their trauma, to, to 
manage the feelings that come up when they're triggered, and then to grow from the experience. We can help people do that, but we can't turn back time and rescue them from, from what happened. There's, there are things we can do, and we can do a heck of a lot in good trauma therapy, and it makes a difference in the person's life, a, me- a, life, a measurable difference that really helps them move on. But um, we also uh, have to help them be honest about what, what they went through and, and integrate it into their, their story, their life story. Yes, yes. I feel like um, one of the kind of underlying messages of this book is to be able to hold like both that something bad happened and I can be okay now that I'm safe, you know, and, and, but not just that, but there just is a big feeling in the book to me of, you know, coming away from that black and white, all or nothing type thinking and, and knowing that terrible things do happen. And if we survive them, we can grow and be, you know, have wonderful lives. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And uh, we can... Which is a hopeful message for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I do have a hopeful message in the book. Um, and I... Uh, um, feel that hope for people, and uh, and it comes out of my direct work with them. I see it. I see people get better, and so it's it's an honest hope. It's not a it's not a false reassurance. Definitely. But uh, but where where people you know get into so much trouble is when they want to leapfrog over the process of recovery and just get to that end point already, and so like okay, uh, I I just kind of want to move on, and that's where right. that's where people get into trouble because. It is so painful facing the, the traumas of their past, making sense of them, coming to a place where, where they're not overwhelmed by the feelings that get raised, noticing and learning what their triggers are so that they can then manage those moments where they do feel overwhelmed and then also be able to you know, reach a point where they can then live alongside their trauma that all is what helps people be able to grow from the experience. The other piece that that I talk about in, in my book that that I think others, you know, where I, I think there's a limitation in work that's been previously done is the idea of integrating trauma into one's identity. There's recovery from trauma, but then there's also moving beyond the trauma. And I think it's important when people experience trauma to be honest about or to, to reach a point where they can more comfortably face the realities of their past without being undone or overwhelmed by them. But then what does that, you know, what is, how does trauma fit into their identity? And with some people, you know, trauma becomes the entire story of their life. I was traumatized. And, and that's a real limitation when people do that, when it becomes their whole story. Trauma does not have to be the whole story. It's a chapter and maybe a couple chapters. And, and they're, they're certainly important chapters, no question about it, but it doesn't have to be the whole story of the person's life. And so we want to help people reach a point where they can find other ways to define themselves, other, you know, you know, where they can sort of, in a, in a, with more self-determination, find alternate identities, aspects of their own identity. 
So that's an important piece. Again, without sidestepping it and saying, oh, you know, pretending, you know, without pretending, you know, being honest and, and, but integrating it into their, into their, um, into their identity. So that's, that's a, that's a piece where I, where I, I think that we don't, you know, we don't see enough in, in the literature on that. And I, and I, and I think that that's, I really wanted to treat the issue of what's trauma's place in people's identities when they, when they, when they've gone through the process of trauma recovery. Where does trauma fit into their life now and, and, and into who, you know, who they see themselves as? Yeah. So I, I, wanted, I, wanted to, I wanted to mention that. Yes. It's, it's making me think about something I saw just yesterday was a, I know you're Canadian, so I don't know if you're as familiar with this, but there was a teenager who was kidnapped. That was a huge sensational story in the 90s here. Elizabeth Smart, she was 14. She was kidnapped. Oh, and oh. She was found nine months after she was kidnapped and the person was prosecuted who did it. And um, it came into the news recently because one of the kidnappers was released on parole. But in this video, she was saying how people see her as the girl who was kidnapped. And she was saying, that is me, but I'm more than that. You know, that's that's not that doesn't define who I am, you know, because obviously she was someone before this happened. And she was someone who went through that. And she's someone who has lived, you know, now, I don't know, at least probably 15, 20 years since then. And, you know, carried on with her life. And it sounds like she's done a good amount of therapy. And she's saying, you know, it doesn't define me. It is something I went through. So I think, you know, what you said, it's, um, and it was, you talk about it in the book, in terms of kind of the idea of post-traumatic growth. Yeah. I mean, I don't know for awesome. sure if that was how you were defining it, but yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think, I think post-traumatic growth is a, is a really important concept that mm. has, has come into the literature in the last few years where we get into trouble with post-traumatic growth is when we, when it's used in a dismissive way, you yes. know, don't, don't, don't worry, you'll be fine. You'll grow from this. Yes. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, there's nothing more dismissive and irritating to people who've been through the ringer than to hear other people who haven't been through those experiences say, oh, you'll be fine. In fact, you'll grow from it. You know, it's right. Oh, that's really annoying to people and not just annoying. I mean, it's dismissive. It's, yes. Invalidating. It's, 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 it's absolutely invalidating. So so you really want to make sure that when you talk about post-traumatic growth, uh, it's not just a caveat. It's it's a it's it's a true acknowledgement that in terms of therapeutic technique, you cannot and should not sidestep the validation that's needed in 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 working with people. You know, validating the person's traumatic experiences. What have they lost? And they've lost a lot. You know, I talked about my parents in terms of, yes. um, uh, in part, losing losing child aspects of their child or you know, um, uh, growing up in a way, way too quickly. But, but there are other losses that people experience through trauma, loss, loss of illusions about the world, you know, that the world can be a safe place no matter what I do, or, or loss of illusions, uh, you know, loss of hopes and dreams. You know, people, people have dreams and, it's, and, 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 and then they think, oh my God, how could I have been so dumb to think that, that, that a, that a boyfriend can treat you well? You know, I, I should have realized that, you know, so there's a sort of way in which, you know, mm-hmm. you know, there's the terrible uh, losses that people experience through the course of through the course of traumatic events, not just the, the 
particular behaviors that happened to them, but all kinds of emotional losses that went along with that. But if the person goes through, you know, no, I shouldn't say but, and, Mm. and, and, if the person works through those things and acknowledges those losses and experiences them and faces the elemental questions of life and works with this in therapy, um, what can come from many people is an opportunity to see themselves in new ways, to see, to, to ask, you know, to ask questions, you know, a certain amount, to, to experience a certain amount of pain. And out of that pain, there's the potential for some wisdom to grow. Not everybody experiences this idea of post-traumatic growth. And you don't have to experience post-traumatic growth in order to have successful psychotherapy. You really don't. Different kinds of therapies look different. But, but that is something that many people do experience when they've kind of spent a lot of time in therapy thinking about what they've been through and asking themselves, okay, how do I now want to live my life? And what, what does what I've been through say about me? How do I want to live? What do I want? How do I want to be different? How do I want to have, um, you know, how do, in what ways do I, has the trauma affected me and, and, and will it affect me for the rest of my life? And in what ways do I want it not to affect me? In what ways am I going to find a voice that speaks, that speaks against what happened or, or, or that responds to that and, and says, I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to assert my own, my own self-determination. I'm going to, I'm going to assert my own voice and it's going to be different than maybe how, maybe I was told to live or that sort of thing. So I think this is, this is part of the process of post-traumatic growth. And, and we do see it when, when we have that, we have growth and development. And that's a very nice thing to see when it happens. And, and, it's, and it's not rare. It certainly does happen mm-hmm. in, tra- in trauma therapy. Absolutely. Yes. I've seen it many times. And I, I think, um, you know, the only, as they say, the only way out is through. It's actually much more of a rich experience to live with the awareness of kind of how things really are and you know to be able to have more of a sense of wisdom versus like a you know happily ever after type belief about what life is supposed to be like it's just you know yeah that's so limiting and i've learned and i've learned so much from my clients about how you know sort of things that that in, in terms of what they've been through, a uh, kind of wisdom that that uh, I, I feel very lucky that I've gotten through through their experiences. I think, of course, where where it's difficult is where where instead of wisdom, the pain gets turned into cynicism, mm-hmm. and 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 some people have experienced that, and I certainly don't fault them for that, or or even you know sit here kind of condemning mm-hmm. condemning that. I just I just think that that's a that's a that's a painful place to live. It's, it's, a, it's, it's hard. It's hard to live in that place. And, you know, when you, when you sort of, when you settle on a sort of cynical worldview and trauma, trauma therapy, good trauma therapy should help people find something other than kind of just the pain and the loss. Um, it should help them be able to move, move beyond that. Yes. And it's, it's so beautiful to be able to walk along that path with our clients and, and ourselves in our, you know, journeys of personal growth and development. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think your book is your new book and I'm going to 
read your other book now, but I think your new book, Trauma and the Struggle to Open Up, is going to be very helpful to so many therapists who are working with people who've experienced trauma and to so many people who have experienced trauma who want to understand more. I feel like it's very relatable for both. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, I really, I really appreciate what you're saying. That's really kind of you. And I, you know, when I wrote the book, I, uh, you and I were talking briefly yesterday on the phone, and I mentioned that I was speaking to, in a sense, two audiences, and they're complementary audiences. They're not disparate. On they're they're really complementary. I was talking to therapists, and I was talking to their clients. So my you know, very often when I talk about in the book, I say when we, and I use the word we, I'm sometimes referring to the we of we as therapists, and I'm sometimes referring to the we as clients, we who, we who, we who are survivors, we who mm-hmm. have been through struggles and pain and suffering and don't always know, you know, what to do with, with those feelings that come up that are, that are really, really difficult, some, that sometimes blindside us. And then we as therapists who work with vulnerable people who've been through a lot and and don't always, you know, feel like we have the answers, but we're willing to sit with with our clients, learn from them, you know, sh- share with them some of the things that we've we've you know some of the experiences that we've had over the years and 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 what we've learned from other clients so that we can be helpful to them. And and I'm hoping that my book, in a sense, I sort of envisioned an audience of therapists with with their clients you know with them and then i'm speaking to people who who so even if you know uh people who aren't necessarily in therapy i was uh, my hope was that the book could be useful to them as well yes i think so i mean i really think the way it's written it's it's not over anyone's head in terms of too clinical and it's not beneath you know what someone i consider myself a pretty experienced trauma therapist and i've i you know, I'm finding many, many resonant points and new, you know, awarenesses and explanations of things that I didn't know how to put into words. So I think, um, I think it's wonderful. I'm, I'm really grateful that you were willing to come on to therapy chat today. Oh, I'm really grateful that you contacted me and that, and that we, uh, and invited me and that, and, uh, this, this was really fun. It's, it's really enjoyable for me to be able to talk to people who, who, you know, who are, who are like, like me struggling with, with, with kind of just trying to be a better therapist and, and find ways to help, you know, to help people and to, and to keep improving how we do it. You, you've made a great contribution to that. So where can people find your book? So it's available on Amazon and if people Google my name, Robert T. Muller, Trauma and the Struggle to Open Up, then they can easily find it on, on Amazon or, or other, you know, it's also on the publisher's website, WW Norton. Okay. It's, uh, yeah, those, those places are probably the, the, the main, the main ways that people, that people find it. Wonderful. I will have links to those in our show notes so that people who are listening can click right on it if they want to go to the book and, you know, find you your other book on Amazon, I'm sure too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, Dr. Robert T. Muller, thank you so much for being my guest on Therapy Chat today. Thank you, Laura. I really appreciate it. uh, it It was really fun to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Dr. Robert T. Muller, the author of Trauma and the Struggle to Open Up from Avoidance to Recovery and Growth. I just loved this discussion and I have been so eager to share it with all of you. I'd love to know what you think about it. If you'd like to leave a message, please go to my website, therapychatpodcast.com and leave a message through SpeakPipe. I love hearing from my listeners. As always, thank you so much for your support of Therapy Chat. Talk to you soon. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.